Hello and welcome to another exclusive VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access multimedia channel that brings you the latest research updates in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, we bring you the second myeloma session, an exclusive discussion featuring international myeloma leading experts, including Paul Richardson of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Maria Victoria Mateus of the University Hospital of Salamanca, Evangelos Terpos of the University of Athens, and AJ Chari of Mount Sinai. Our speakers discuss key updates in the treatment and management of myeloma patients in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, including evolving strategies to reduce the risk of infection, international guidelines, treatment options for patients, as well as advances in myeloma therapies, some of which may be relevant to COVID-19. Welcome everybody uh, to the myeloma sessions on the video journal of hematologic oncology or VJ Heme Onc, uh, as we love to call it. Um, today's discussion uh, will focus on what we have learned over the last uh, six months or so on how to manage our myeloma patients during the tragedy and huge challenge of the COVID-19 pandemic. And importantly, how this is evolving with time and experience. Uh, and then we'll go on to discuss some of the key data uh, recently presented that can be implemented now and how myeloma research uh, is being impacted by COVID-19. But we hope to finish very much on a positive note um, with some important words of encouragement for our audience uh, in terms of where we currently stand and the future directions um, that we may be headed to. And not least of all, how much we've learned uh, over this last uh, six months of what has been, for all of us, has been a remarkably challenging and difficult time. So in that spirit, it really is a pleasure and a privilege to welcome the faculty today. I'm joined by Mary V. Mateus, who leads the myeloma program at the University of Hospital of Salamanca in Spain, and has really been an international leader in myeloma research, and has also been on the forefront of the experience in Spain of how myeloma patients have been treated in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. In that same spirit, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Achai Chari, who is a leader of the myeloma team, working with his partners, including Dr. Sundar Jagannath, at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, New York. And Achai truly in the United States has been on the front line of dealing with uh, the immediate consequences of the uh, pandemic in New York and all that that has meant for that, uh, for that community. Uh, he will br bring us, I think, some unique insights because not only has he uh, provided outstanding care for his patients in New York, but he's had a leadership role in the International Myeloma Society effort um, to document the broad scope um, of um, the challenges facing the myeloma community internationally. Uh, as well as uh, within the United States. And that, uh, finally, in that same context, it's a privilege to welcome Evangelos Terpos, who joins us from the University of Athens in Greece. Uh, and here, Evangelos has also had a leadership role, not only in understanding the dimensions of the myeloma pandemic in Athens and Greece in particular, but also actually in repurposing uh, treatment strategies to actually take on the pandemic. And we'll get some very Nice insights, I think, uh, from Evangelos from the standpoint of research being done uh, in Greece. Um, so as a first starting point, I'd love to have uh, Mary V start our discussion today. And we're going to first focus on evolving strategies uh, to reduce risk for patients with myeloma in the COVID era. And it would be lovely to hear, Mary V, of your experience in Spain and some of the things that uh, have been implemented in the Spanish myeloma community to address this challenge. Thanks, uh, Paul, and uh, thanks uh, to also to my colleagues, uh, Ajay and uh, Evangelos, for being here today. And uh, in Spain, uh, well, as uh, all societies uh, did at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the Spanish Myeloma Group launched uh, some recommendations for the management of uh, patients with multiple myeloma uh, under the COVID-19 pandemic. These were recommendations basically based on trying to maintain our patients with the disease under control because we thought that this was going to be relevant. But at the same time, we had to protect as much as possible our patients who are being infected by COVID-19. So we started with telemedicine and many phone calls to the patients in order to uh, well deliver the drugs at home if it was possible and trying to avoid as much as possible visits of the patients to the hospital. But uh, what we did also in parallel, and I think that this has been extremely important, was uh, to collect 
all baseline characteristics uh, as well as uh, data coming from myeloma patients infected by COVID-19 in Spain. And uh, these data were also put together with uh, data from myeloma patients worldwide in an international myeloma society effort. But from the Spanish myeloma group point of view, I can say that we collected data from 170 and 67 myeloma patients infected by COVID-19 and hospitalized because of pneumonia. And we decided to compare the outcome and baseline characteristics of these patients with a match group of 167 non-cancer patients. Mm. And the first important finding was that myeloma patients infected by COVID-19 had a higher mortality rate than non-cancer patients. And in fact, the hospital death rate for myeloma patient was 34% versus 23% for the non-cancer patients. And also we tried to evaluate what were the potential factors predicting high mortality rate in myeloma patients. And we found how being male older than 65 years, as well as to have the active, the disease active, the disease non under control, as well as renal impairment as comorbidity, were the most significant factors predicting high inpatient mortality rate. So, based on this analysis, I think that the recommendations we have done at the beginning from the Spanish myeloma group were valid. But I would say that from my point of view, and the first recommendation from the Spanish myeloma group was myeloma patients should maintain the disease under control. As much as possible. And how to maintain the disease under control? If the patients are young patients, especially female, but I would say young patients with no renal impairment, with active disease, I think that they have to receive the active therapy in order to maintain the disease under control, of course, with the appropriate hygienic measurements. By contrast, for elderly patients, especially if they present with renal impairment, males, I think that the mortality rate, if they become infected by COVID-19, was going to be extremely high. And this was the reason why the recommendation for this patient is to stay at home if possible and to prescribe the oral drugs combinations, because uh, I think that uh, these patients should be protected uh, of uh, frequent visits to the hospital in order to be COVID-19 free as much as possible. And these are basically the recommendations we did, the data we have found in our Spanish uh, myeloma group, and uh, the current recommendation based on the findings uh, we have in our experience. Extremely important information, Marie-Vie, and thank you, because that's a, a comprehensive and, and very thoughtful analysis. If I may, if you could just repeat the mortality that was encountered in the Spanish cohort of myeloma patients, was it 34% or higher? 30, 34%. Right, and your control group was 23%, correct? Correct, yes. Yeah, and that obviously was statistically significant, I would imagine. Yes. Mm, yeah, I mean, that certainly mirrors uh, our own experience uh, here in, 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 in Boston, and certainly speaking for my own practice, where in patients who were hospitalized, um, the, the rates of mortality were, were, were very worrisome uh, and very consistent, actually, with what you've just described. Um, I, I would love to hear uh, uh, now, if I may, um, from Achai, uh, the sort of New York perspective, and at the same time, um, if I may, um, what, what you can share with us from the IMS point of view, the International Myeloma Society. Sure, I think, um, one, to echo, I think, Mary V's points, the patient and disease components are very important, and then I think the other issue is the prevalence of the disease, right? So, uh, what you do in March uh, versus July versus August may be very different based on what's happening in your immediate area. And in the peak of the pandemic in New York, I mean, it was quite crazy. I mean, literally every day, uh, there, it seemed like the floor of the hospital was being converted to COVID only. You know, what used to be an oncology floor became a COVID only floor. So um, the ER was overwhelmed. There was an outdoor tent. It was quite, you know, dramatic. And um, just the humanism component, I mean, you know, 
we're physicians, but the nursing care is really outstanding. You know, as physicians, you go in and out of the room, but the nurses are bringing in the meds, the, the social support, helping patients to the bathroom. There were no visitors. There was a lot more delirium in the hospital because all the non-English speaking patients didn't have visitors. So I think just it was a very striking time and, um, and we didn't know a lot. So I think same as Marie V, we kind of uh, tried to minimize visits to the hospital, minimize laboratories, converting to oral therapies, skipping parental treatment visits. Um, uh, also, we had a lot of patients that were scheduled for collection of stem cells and transplant. So those were canceled. Um, so really, it, it came to a grinding halt. Clinical trial accruals were halted. Um, and for each patient on clinical trial, we had to justify to the IRB, uh, what is the risk benefit for this patient? Um, and so uh, in heavily treated patients, they were allowed to continue, but some patients we took breaks and communicated with sponsors. So in the peak of the pandemic, it was really an unprecedented time. And fortunately, uh, you know, I think just as a testament to all of us here, it's as myeloma always is collaborative. Um, we actually collaborated with all of our New York City institutions. And uh, there's a manuscript uh, led by Malin Hultkranz from Memorial. Um, there was about 127 patients um, that was just from the New York institutions. And one of the striking things in that paper, which we can come back to, is that 20% approximately of the patients actually were pre precursor conditions. So we're talking MGUS, smoldering, plasma cytoma. And that's really striking when you think about, you know, when you go into this median age of late 60s to 70s, hypogammaglobulinemia, immunosuppressive therapy, we didn't know what the impact of steroids was. So the concern was really, you know, that these relapse refractory patients where the most common cause of morbidity and mortality is infection, not to mention some of our drugs actually increase the risk of respiratory infection. So going into this, I think there was a lot of unknowns. And um, the fact that, that that message came out in the New York paper is kind of interesting. Um, and then when we get into the IMS data, you, you asked Marivia a simple question, what was the mortality rate? And that question, if you ask, what is the mortality rate of myeloma? It's actually a very complicated answer because what we started with was there was a lot, testing access is a big issue. So in, in US, um, I can tell you at Mount Sinai, even during the peak of the pandemic, I could very easily call one of my patients and have them go to a lab to get the nasal swab and go back home. And so almost, over 50% of the outpatients with COVID in the IMS um, collection of 650 patients, over 50% came from the US. So that is clearly going to affect your numerator denominator, because if you throw in a lot of outpatients, your mortality rate is going to be lower. So then we said, okay, let's maintain equipoise. Let's only look at mortality rates in hospitalized patients. Now you see a big spread as low as 27% to as high as 57%. And that 57% comes from UK. And now we get into additional complexities of resource availability, uh, healthcare uh, allocation. And so the number of patients in UK, and I'm curious to hear Marie V's take too, Spain, very few patients got ventilator access in these countries. So um, clearly that's going to be another issue. And now, of course, there's a lot more emerging data about the need for vents versus high flow, non-invasive ventilation. But back then in the early part of the pandemic, we didn't really have that information. So but strikingly, the number is almost identical. When you look at the hospitalized patients, the mortality rate was about 34%. So I think that's a very similar message. And then I think the other striking findings from this um, study were that, similar to what I echoed with the New York series, about 36% of the patients were diagnosed within the past year, so 2019 to 2020, and over 50%, so 54% of patients were receiving their first line of therapy. And so that's a pretty striking number. Um, given that you think that the prevalence of myeloma, if you think about the distribution, you're typically gonna have a lot more relapsed refractory. And those are the ones we were really worried about. And it's skewed actually in the opposite direction. So we had precursor conditions from New York, um, a lot of newly diagnosed or first line of therapy. And you know, I think we can discuss further. I'm curious to hear other people's thoughts. It really begs the question of you know, how much of COVID complexity and mortality is really the virus versus the, the actually inflammatory sequelae? are the heavily treated patients able to mount the same response? And a great example of this is one of my lymphoma colleagues had a pair of sisters. One had um, heavily pretreated disease post-CAR-T, the sister was healthy, both got COVID, and it's the sister that ended up in the ICU. And I think, and the patient had minimal symptoms, right? So I think we need to study these more. 
Um, but just the uh, other part that I would mention is, you know, we looked at a lot of the, the for the uh, clarification, 33% mortality rate, we looked at univary analysis and what were the factors that predicted for worse outcomes. It was age, ISS, three, high-risk disease, renal disease, suboptimal myeloma control, and multiple comorbidities. But in multivariate, the only ones that came out were age, high-risk disease, which I think is quite interesting, um, renal disease, and suboptimal myeloma control. And that message actually came up in Lancet as well, where the when you look at all cancer patients, a risk factor for worse complications was actually uncontrolled cancer. The odds ratio was actually five, five-fold higher for death. So I think what we're learning, of course, now admittedly, this we have to put a caveat, these are retrospective studies, and pretty much a lot of the, as we heard from Spain and US, we, we halted a lot of our visits. So with that intervention, this is what we've seen. Um, and so there may be bias in whom we did that and did not do that. So there's always a caveat with retrospective studies, but it seems like similar to Spain, similar to all cancer, we cannot compromise the myeloma control and that's when you come back, and I completely echo what Marie V said, is there's the disease control, but then, then that's where we bring in the patient factors. So does this patient, is there, are they older or younger? What is their renal function? What comorbidities do they have? And then you put in the myeloma status, and then you put in the prevalence of the disease, and you kind of have to plug in all those data points to come up with the right treatment. And that may change for a given patient over time. So really, I think uh, a lot of interesting findings that are, fortunately, the message is pretty similar. Um, and so that's always reassuring that there's not a differential outcomes in different countries. Yeah. Well, thank you, Archai. That was very thoughtful. In the terms of the outpatient population that you identified in the IMS survey, what was the mortality like in that group? Or do we it was uh, very low. Um, and I can get you that number in a second. Yeah. Um, that's good to know because I think from a patient perspective, I think it's important to emphasize that it's those patients who require hospitalization in whom so the death rate went from 4% for outpatients to 31% for hospitalized not on ventilatory support to 80% for patients on ventilatory support. Yeah, that's incredibly important because I think that, uh, I, you know, certainly our experience and obviously uh, Nikhil and Ken have, have represented us in the IMS uh, survey uh, uh, reflecting our group's broad experience. And I think the important point is that we would agree with you, Achai, that um, our own experience has been actually quite favorable. And in fact, to echo your point, um, you know, having been on the unit every day with my nursing team, it's been incredible to look at how our nurses have responded and not simply in the COVID context, i.e. COVID patients, that's of course been extraordinary as well, but actually with our own patients, absolutely fearless, absolutely dedicated to their care, because to your point, it's been the ability to maintain their myeloma control that's been our priority. Uh, at, at Dana-Farber, we've actually been allowed to keep our protocols open. They've left it to us to judge which ones we should and shouldn't use. So we've obviously curtailed transplant. We've curtailed CAR-T, not ruled it out, but simply very, very, very selectively used it. And we've then focused on, for example, you know, uh, three weekly infusions of Belantamab mafodotin, for example. You know, the therapies that don't necessarily trigger CRS don't necessarily trigger the kind of immune dysfunction um, that could exacerbate problems. And we focused on oral therapies as well with, with considerable success. And we've been able to continue to enroll to really high quality trials for our patients because our biggest problem has frankly been loss of disease control. But by patients not coming to get their therapy, um, we've seen their myeloma get out of, the, uh, 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 out of, the, uh, out of control and, and inflict considerable harm. Um, in that context, Evangelos, if I may, Please, can you give us the Greek perspective and what you've learned in your center at Athens, which is the premier center in, in the whole of Greece? So we'd love you to hear your perspectives, please, Evangelos. I represent, thank you, Paul. I represent, I think, uh, the uh, center with the less experience in COVID because we are a country with very low number of COVID cases in general. And in our population, we had only, uh, I checked within the Greek myeloma study group, only two cases, asymptomatic cases in multiple myeloma who were uh, diagnosed because in uh, every patient at the time of diagnosis and every cycle of treatment on day one, we are having a PCR test for COVID, for the detection of COVID. So we detected only two cases uh, who were positive uh, in whole Greece, where, as I told you, we are a country with only 200 deaths and uh, only 4,000 cases in general 
of whom more than 1,000 are tourists. So in general, I don't know why, but um, because uh, we took measures, for example, uh, with only five days earlier compared to Belgium, and uh, our country has only, I will talk about deaths because this is something that uh, nobody can uh, uh, say that you don't have a lot of tests to detect the cases, but for deaths we had only 200 cases, 204 to be honest, while in Belgium it is around 10,000. And we talk mm -hmm. about countries with exactly the same population, 11 million. So we don't have a real problem. Uh, I had the privilege to uh, lead a paper on behalf of the European Myeloma Network regarding uh, recommendations uh, from uh, experts in all Europe about uh, the management of myeloma patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that although this was an opinion paper because uh, uh, we have not had any data at the end of April that this paper was uh, uh, developed and published uh, online and leukemia issue of uh, 21st of May. Uh, as Marie V and Ajay mentioned now, we are going to have more data and we may need to update these uh, guidelines after having data. But I think what we have uh, um, included in this paper regarding our opinion, I think that this remains the uh, rather the gold standard to date, meaning that all patients, at least uh, at diagnosis and before its new line of treatment, they have to have a test for the PCR uh, for the COVID-19, for the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus. And uh, then depending on what we are going to find, we have to uh, manage our patients. For example, if the patient is asymptomatic and uh, has, is asymptomatic and has COVID-19 positive PCR test, then I think that um, if uh, the patient has not very aggressive myeloma and newly diagnosed patients, then we can delay treatment for 14 days. I think this is not a big issue. Uh, but if the patient has acute renal failure and uh, uh, aggressive characteristics, that probably we need to start treatment with very, very close follow-up in order not uh, to, to miss uh, the systematic uh, COVID-19 infection. But for patients with systemic disease, I mean for symptomatic disease, I think it is a real problem because uh, as Marivy mentioned, if we have a young patient, then we have to deal with the problem of going to uh, transplant or not to uh, start um, aggressive therapy or not. Uh, if the patient is elderly, I think uh, the main problem for us would be the acute renal failure because otherwise I believe that the patient can start with an oral treatment or we can delay treatment for 14 days. Mm -hmm. But for young patients, mainly with aggressive disease, I think we have uh, uh, a problem regarding uh, transplantation, mainly in areas where uh, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, continues to exist. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask both Marie-V and Ajay, if I may, um, if there are any characteristics uh, of the myeloma patients that um, have develop the disease, meaning if neutropenia is an important factor for developing the disease or lymphopenia, if we have any other characteristics regarding specific therapy, for example, if monoclonal antibodies or immunomodulatory drugs are more prone uh, to make the patient sensitive to develop the disease. Do we have from your cohort such data? Because I think that this is something very interesting for all the physicians. And all the time I've been asked if neutropenia, for example, is a risk factor for developing COVID-19. If transplantation is a, a, a factor for developing COVID-19 more uh, easier, more frequently compared to the others. Thank you very much, Evangelos. Yeah, I'd love comments first from Mary B and then uh, from Achai. Yeah, from the, the Spanish myeloma cohort, I can say that uh, over 80% of the patients had been received proteasome inhibitors, over 70% immunomodulatory drugs, and approximately 30% of the patients monoclonal antibodies. And uh, none of these agents influenced in the inpatient mortality rate. Mm. And uh, the mortality rate was uh, quite comparable across the different group of patients considering the treatment. 
So I can say that uh, we, uh, well, it is not recommended to avoid any specific antimyeloma regime because of uh, their impact in the inpatient mortality rate. At least in our series, and I can comment in the International Myeloma Society cohort. And concerning eutologous stem cell transplantation, in our series, 30% uh, of the patients had been received autologous stem cell transplantation, and the inpatient mortality rate was uh, lower than in the overall cohort, and the inpatient mortality rate was only 18%. And uh, patients uh, who died when they had received autologous stem cell transplantation, and I think that Ajay has uh, commented this uh, before, these patients had been received the autologous stem cell transplantation in uh, the uh, prior months before being infected by COVID-19. So patients with uh, recent newly diagnosed myeloma that had received maybe in the year before being infected and uh, well they were receiving most of them maintenance with lenalidomide and they died but uh, well i think that it is not uh, uh, true to say that the transplant can potentially protect from the invasion mortality rate for patients infected by COVID-19. But I think that what we can say is that autologous stem cell transplantation did not impact in the mortality rate when the patients become infected by COVID-19. And if I may, maybe just to sort of drill down on that, because I think that's an incredibly important point. But I also think it's fair to say, isn't it, you know, obviously, certainly in our selection process for transplant, we pick, you know, we select patients who are fit, healthy, you know, typically have good renal function and so on and tend to be younger. So I think one has to be a little bit careful about that, but it's certainly reassuring to hear um, that uh, uh, um, the, the, the mortality has been, been really quite substantially lower in that group. It's very interesting because in the determination study where we have early versus delayed transplant, in our cohort of patients, we have seen COVID infection in both arms, but actually at low rates, very low rates, and we've had no mortality in either arm, be it early transplant or late, zero. So I think it points to the critical factor, in my opinion, which is disease control. If you have good Absolutely. disease control and you have diminished uh, immune dysfunction, sort of a double negative, if you will, but if your immune function is more stable, I think you, you know, the outcomes are, are, are likely to be better. Um, so I think that's an incredibly important point. Actually, could you go comment further? Sure. Um, yeah, to pick up on your theme of the transplant and confounding age. So in IMS, 87% of patients uh, who, for whom we knew the treatment status were in active therapy, but the vast majority, almost 90%, had treatment held at the time of COVID diagnosis. Um, recent transplant, even within a year prior to it, um, they actually had a lower death rate. However, it's confounded by the age difference. It was a 10-year age difference between transplant and non-transplant. And so when you adjust for the age, that difference really disappears. Um, we also didn't see a difference even within six months. Um, we had about 86% had exposure uh, to prior images, uh, prior PIs, 80% prior image, 30% anti-CD38. And in univary analysis, um, PI and CD38 were not associated with outcome, although there was a slight in univariate, the trend towards decrease emits showing decreased mortality, but in multivariate analysis, there was no um, difference. And all the other drugs in CAR-T, I personally have had um, two uh, patients post-CAR-T who had COVID. They were both outpatients um, and you know, did very well. And if I may just add two other quick points, because I think to Evangelos' question, um, some of the granularity of the questions you're asking is harder to get in a global data set, but um, we actually recently published the Sinai experience in Journal, journal of Hematologic Oncology with 60 patients at Sinai looking at detailed laboratory parameters, et cetera. And so uh, we did not see any particular, there was lymphopenia at the time of COVID diagnosis, which I think has been reported widely. Um, but the only kind of laboratory thing that seemed to be correlating with worse outcomes is persistently elevated D-dimers. So as you know, that the endothelial damage and the antithrombotic therapy is very important in management of COVID. And that changed during the time period of um, the pandemic, uh, where initially we weren't doing that. Everybody was getting hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin at the hospital. But then towards the end of the pandemic, everybody was getting anticoagulation. Mm -hmm. um, and then the two final points I would make, I think these are important for management issues because uh, one of the questions I remember for one patient of mine who was admitted with COVID, um, she recovered from the, the pneumonia 
and then needed a procedure, uh, kyphoplasty or radiation, either one, and they required a negative swab. So they want two negative swabs before you could do a procedure because of the risk of, to the staff. So Friday, the swab was negative. Monday, the swab was positive. And so, uh, and so I think what this brings up is, you know, as with any test, what do we know about it? And so in our patients that had serial PCR testing, the median time to becoming PCR negative was 43 days. So it's quite a bit of time. So if you're waiting for that, it's going to be a long time. And then the other kind of striking thing, Sinai fortunately had very early on, we've had internal antibody development. And um, believe it or not, out of 23 patients with myeloma who had antibody testing, do you know how many had positive antibodies? 22. The only patient that did not have an antibody was my patient who had smoldering myeloma with a heavy high level of marrow involvement that hadn't yet oh, started yeah. therapy. But every other patient, and when I bumped into our infectious disease doctor in the hospital, I was like, aren't you surprised? Like, our patients are usually hypogamma, don't respond to vaccines. Mm -hmm. Many of them are on CD38 antibody therapies. Yeah. Some have had CAR-Ts, and everybody's getting antibodies. And so actually in the general population, in the same, the response of antibody development is over 90%, a 99, over 99%. So uh, there was an interesting paper I saw that COVID response may have increased plasmablastic response. And so I'm wondering whether whatever few plasmablasts are floating around or somehow, but it was striking that the antibody, of course, caveat is we don't know what to do with these antibodies and how long they last, but yeah. that's the data that we have. But, but that's, that's, that's great news for our patients. I mean, I, yes. I will say that our management strategy has been, for example, to be using IVIG, uh, to be offering patients um, optimized uh, uh, um, uh, infection control in every sense. And I wonder if that's also impactful in what we're seeing, because obviously our patients, particularly our more advanced patients, are extremely savvy about keeping away from infection and self-isolating. And your newly diagnosed patients are to some extent naive. They don't know and they don't quite understand the same issues. So I wonder if that's a little bit of a confounder in some of the information we have. Um, because certainly one of my patients said to me, I'm just treating this, this as if I was post my transplant and that's how I've handled it and I've been completely fine. And that's a kind of veteran patient who's many years into yeah. his natural history. So I think there are also that, that, that brings up a couple of interesting points because there was actually early in the pandemic there were these grand rounds. I think one of them was from Boston, and somebody brought up that preclinically there's even concern that IVIG may potentiate viral entry, and that's been shown, for example, with measles. So we didn't know what to make of that, but what we found was um, actually hypogammaglobulinemia at a high level because it's so prevalent didn't really predict, but actually in our data. Severe hypogamma, less than 400, did predict for worse outcomes. So I don't think we have data to hold IVIG right now if it's no, no. appropriately indicated. No. Um, and then the other interesting thing, of course, is that I know um, Evangelos has been doing some work, but in those patients that have now gotten the convalescent plasma, of course, their antibodies become positive right away after the treatment. Um, but I think the, these are really patients who are not getting IVIG or convalescent plasma are still able, even if they're hypogamma, with all of that, they're still able to generate this antibody. So yeah. kind of crazy. I, 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 I think that uh, Ajay has, uh, has mentioned two important things. The first is the immunity of the patients with multiple myeloma. And the second is what we have to do with the thrombogenic potential of the virus. Mm -hmm. I think that this is extremely important. I will uh, say some words about the second and uh, some uh, because we talk about myeloma patients. And um, we have seen in patients without myeloma that uh, even after two months after the, uh, for, for COVID patients, after their hospitalizations, they continue to have uh, uh, thrombogenic uh, factors into their blood. Some of them continue to have D-dimers elevated after two months uh, of the, uh, of the uh, uh, of the last day of the hospital. So I mean that um, it seems that during the course of the disease, the thrombogenic potential is very high. And that's why at least for all hospitalized patients, not with myeloma, but with any, with COVID-19, uh, all the societies recommend the use of low molecular weight heparin. So I think for the myeloma specific uh, population, we have the question, do we need to treat all patients with low molecular weight heparin if they are under IMID, for example, administration, like patients who are 
on maintenance with lenalidomide uh, when we are in the COVID pandemic? I think this is one important question. We don't have, of course, any answer. That's why I wanted to ask Ajay and Marivy if they have uh, the cause of death in their uh, cohort of patients in order to know if these patients had um, uh, thrombotic events and this was a cause of, uh, of death. The second, regarding immunity, we had sent um, a letter yesterday in the Journal of Medicine. We don't know which, uh, of course, uh, if it's going to be accepted or not, but it is, I think, a, a, an important uh, observation. Uh, we sent this letter uh, in um, another uh, um, letter that was uh, reported in New England Journal of Medicine and suggests that in 35 patients with mild COVID, there was a dramatic reduction in the anti-SARS-CoV-2 uh, antibodies uh, within two months. So uh, we are running a covalent plasma study and we had checked 256 uh, possible donors who had specific criteria and 74 of them gave uh, uh, their plasma, they were positive for antibodies at a median of 12 days post the screening test. So it was uh, between 8 and 19 days, the range, from the day of screening till the day of uh, plasmapheresis. And even within these two weeks, we had a dramatic reduction in uh, the level of the antibodies in all except of five patients. So uh, five donors, let's say, previous patients with COVID-19. So, and this p-value was uh, 0.0001 mm. below that mm. in both IgG and IgA. And we used two techniques, not only one targeting the um, S1, the spike, uh, the S1 domain of uh, the virus, but also one uh, targeting the N antigen and one targeting the RBD, all of them, were reduced dramatically even after two weeks of, um, uh, I mean, uh, from the day of screening. And the day of screening was 54 days, the median, after uh, the first day of symptoms or of PCR positivity if the patient was asymptomatic. So this suggests that uh, we have a, rad a rapid uh, reduction of the antibodies. Of course, this does not uh, mean that the patient lose the immunity against the virus, but it gives you uh, an idea of uh, what's happening. So I want to make these two... Uh, uh, Angelos, that was very, very insightful and very, uh, very detailed, and I appreciate it very much. But I, I think obviously we have the antibody construct, we have the innate immunity, which may be much more important than people are, have previously appreciated. Um, I would like to, 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 to sort of build on what you've just alluded to. Um, Mary V, in terms of, of treatment choices, we've alluded to this obviously earlier, but certainly we, we've, we've embraced the fact that oral therapies make sense, particularly active ones. In the context of your analysis, did the image story, to build off a point that Evangelos made, did the use of image, be, was it associated with in any way worse outcome vis-a-vis -vis thromboembolic events um, in the patients that were hospitalized uh, in your study? Yeah, this is a, a good question. And, uh, well, unfortunately, we have not collected the final cause of death in our patients. So we don't honestly know if more patients treated with emits maybe died because of thrombotic events. So what uh, we realized was that, uh, well, COVID-19 infection resulted in a quite thrombogenic risk. And most of our patients with myeloma in our series were treated with low molecular weight heparin. So uh, I think that, uh, honestly, we don't know if uh, our patients died from thrombogenic events. And concerning the second question, if uh, we have a planet to add low molecular weight heparin as uh, thromboprophylaxis for all patients receiving immunomodulatory drugs in myeloma, honestly, we have not done this recommendation yet right. because, uh, well, we continued with uh, uh, aspirin if uh, yeah. patients were receiving maintenance with lenalidomide. And what we do is uh, as soon as a myeloma patient or whatever patient, no myeloma, suspect of being infected by COVID-19, uh, we start immediately low molecular weight heparin because we realize since the beginning the mm -hmm. thrombogenic effects caused by COVID-19. No, that's exactly our approach too. And we were a little concerned because obviously there was this concern about ACE2 upregulation and its relationship to infection. 
And so we were worried about whether aspirin would influence that. And uh, those fears have not been borne out, I don't think, for most of the databases that I, I'm aware of. And so we've been done exactly what you're, you've done, Mary V, used standard anticoagulation approaches, warned patients, and then when and if they're hospitalized, exactly what you've done, taken a proactive state step and gone to the more aggressive approaches for thromboprophylaxis. Um, but I, I do think this, this microangiopathy of this disease, this endotheliitis of COVID-19 is very relevant. Both Mary B and I are participating in a project called DEFA-COVID, uh, which is targeting novel agents to go after this endotheliitis and the particular drug we're working with in partnership with a wonderful colleague of Maribis, Jose Moraldo, from the University of Murcia is called Defibrotide, which many of you may be familiar with. And preliminary results from that study in Spain have been quite amazing, actually. Uh, very, very sick MICU patients. So in that spirit, um, further If I may just add one brief comment from the IMS data set as well. We, there was, when you look at the image patients, there's actually no increase in mortality. If anything, I mean, univariate analysis was decreased mortality. How interesting. And, and I think, we, keeping in mind the nature of these studies, which is retrospective, and there's probably a lot more discontinuation of drugs that are parenteral, you might have skewed it in the opposite direction, right? Like that the imits between thrombotic and those are the drugs that were not discontinued might have been associated, but it's coming back in the opposite direction. So it seems like, again, the message is control the disease. And I think at the time of COVID, yep. certainly do anticoagulation. But right now, I don't think we have data to support doing more antithrombotic therapy uh, than, than would have been indicated pre-COVID. Absolutely. And so in that spirit, just as we think about, you know, uh, Evangelos has touched on convalescent sera. We've obviously know the great data with remdesivir and tocilizumab and all these exciting new approaches. I, I think it's worth mentioning that there's been some repurposing of myeloma drugs or certainly uh, drugs targeting lymphoid malignancy. And the BTK inhibition story is particularly exciting. And there are multiple, uh, multiple trials going on no, certainly just acknowledging my own colleague, Steve Trion, has led uh, our own BTK effort based on his actual very elegant preclinical work. Uh, and those studies are ongoing. We don't know results, but there was a nice paper of six cases in blood um, a few months ago uh, with Steve as the first author, suggesting there might be some benefit. But I think we have to be very careful because we have a cautionary tale, don't we, Achai, uh, with Selenexor, where we saw some very interesting and very compelling early data with Selenexor with the larger randomized phase two trial, which is placebo controlled, has actually been now uh, stopped um, because of futility, um, which suggests to me that obviously we'll need to know more about the details of that. Um, but we were very excited about Selenex or based on preliminary data, but obviously that hasn't panned out. Uh, actually, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, it, the Selenexor, there's been very interesting preclinical work already that it blocks viral replication, blocks inflammation in mouse models. When you inject mice with lethal doses of flu, it can abrogate that. Um, and so I, I had one particular patient that was admitted with COVID-19, uh, very heavily treated pentorefractory, and she presented with both COVID, but also epidural disease that was progressing. And so... Um, she got hydroxychloroquine and azithro, and her fever curve did never dropped. Her mm. CRP continued to rise, and her platelets were low. So yeah. in starting Selenexor, we started the low dose, which is right. uh, the, the 20 TIWs, the treatment yeah. in the study. And promptly after starting that, all of those normalized. Fever stopped, CRP mm. downtrended, platelets recovered, actually, because you right. typically would see the opposite. So all of that normalized, and then she was able to go on to her full dose of Selenexor. So that's an off-label use, obviously, of, right. uh, and just ramping up. But it needed to be confirmed with randomized studies, obviously. And I think it may, again, go back to the interplay between disease and COVID, yeah. right? Like, her disease was just not controlled, and yet yeah. she was also having COVID at the same time. Yeah. I, I completely agree, and I, I think we have to be very careful because these trials have been conducted incredibly quickly with you know, very rapid enrollment, and, and there's a heterogeneity of COVID that we're learning about. So I wonder if when all is said and done, there'll be subgroups of patients who might benefit and some who clearly don't. And you know, just as the, the story around hydroxychloroquine and Zithromax has been so com complicated, there's clearly some positive, some negative, and some of the more recent American data have been quite remarkably positive from well well done studies without sort of crazy data. Um, I think you're absolutely right, Achai. I think the story will be a mix of these things as we try to learn what goes best. Well, I think in the interest of time, we're, we're almost at, at our hour of allocated time. I just wanted to uh, uh, thank you very, very much um, for an outstanding uh, uh, discussion. 
uh, and I think as we finish up, um, are there any of latest advances in the myeloma space, specifically myeloma therapies, um, that you think could really be a hopeful message for our audience on the one hand, and on the other hand, be particularly relevant as we face the continuing challenge of COVID? So if I may, Mary V, anything that strikes you from the recent EHA, ASCO uh, uh, banner headlines in myeloma that may be particularly relevant to what we're talking about today? Uh, well, uh, from the uh, myeloma management point of view, I think that ASCO and EHA were very productive in, uh, uh, well, new agents and especially new data. And I would say from the first line of therapy to late advanced stage of the disease, if we focus on late advanced stage of the disease, I think that uh, we had uh, uh, interesting data coming from new immunomodulatory drugs, new third modes from oral administration, very effective even in patients already refractory to the conventional ones, lenalidomide and pomalidomide. We had the opportunity to see interesting data about belantamagmaphodotin, especially about the durability of the response in patients who responded, as well as positive data coming from the combinations with proteasome inhibitors or even the checkpoint inhibitor pembrolizumab. We had also BCMA-targeted therapy through T-cell engagers or bi-specific monoclonal antibodies, also very attractive data, as well as CAR-Ts. And uh, we had uh, the opportunity to see the data from the pivotal karma study with, uh, from my point of view, impressive efficacy results from the overall response rate and CR rate if we consider the population included in the study. The main challenge, from my point of view, is the durability of the response, and we will see how we are going to maintain the response. But uh, we had also the opportunity to see new combinations like carfilzomib with the monoclonal antibody anti-CD38 Isatuximab, impressive data, and also even in the Afron setting, we had the opportunity to see how maybe three drug-based combination plus the monoclonal antibody anti-CD38 for high-risk patients, whilst we had the opportunity to see how Ilatuximab seems to add no much more benefit to the conventional VRD in the Afron setting in the standard risk and also in high-risk patients. And uh, I don't know, maybe much more new data than uh, IGI or Evangelos can complement, but this is uh, just a brief uh, well, summary of the most relevant data. Well, that's lovely, Mary, and I think I would echo everything you've said. And just before I ask Achai and Evangelos for their comments, I think one of the uh, very interesting points about our standard platform of RVD is its, it's, it's favorable performance against KRD. And my only point about that is really that the toxicity signal from carfilzomib-based therapy, I think we all have learned it has an endothelial platform. And as we think about COVID, that's not a trivial consideration to bear in mind. And I think as we think about, therefore, way we, how we strategically position drugs, you know, certainly RVD is the most, seems certainly the least expensive of the triplets up front, and at the same time seems to be validated by the results of the endurance study. Conversely, I certainly firmly believe in carfilzomib's value in relapse in particular, and I think it's helped us frame some of those considerations as we go forward. Uh, and of course, as you so nicely point out, the success of some of the oral therapies as well, uh, helping us to, to, to target disease, better disease control. But Achai and Evangelos, I'd like in the last couple of minutes, if you don't mind, if I could ask you each in about uh, a minute or so uh, to give us your, your sort of sense of what was good and particularly noteworthy out of both EHAR and, uh, and uh, ASCO. And perhaps Achai, I could ask you to go first. Sure. I mean, Mary did an outstanding job summarizing, I think, all the important data. The only I would add was that, um, you know, to put these new uh, studies into context, historically, we looked at a response rate of 25 to 30 percent of PFS of three to three and a half months as uh, significant enough to give, give, give us novel agent accelerated approval. And now we have bispecifics and CAR-Ts with response rates of 80 to 95 percent with PFS around a year in this same if not worse population, because these patients have had all those drugs. So I think it's really a game changer of how big a deal this is. Um, and I think it'll be very exciting to see these drugs move up early um, to see what those do. And I think at ASH this year, we're going to hear, because there's been a lot about BCMA, but there's very exciting new targets that are non-BCMA. And I think right. those will be right. very uh, important for patient care. And then Lastly, I think we really need to do a better job of high-risk disease, and mm -hmm. I think um, yep. it'll be interesting to see how these agents fare. We saw a glimmer of 17P, potentially with cell and extra, really a much better hazard yep. ratio 
than we did with other patients. So I think we need more of these studies that are really powered to look at high risk so that we can start improving that subgroup. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Ajay. Evangelos, last but no means least. I totally agree with my Vivian and Ajay from what they said. Uh, and I just wanted to echo Ajay for the CAR T cells and the bispecific results of both ASCO and TH abstracts. I believe that uh, these two technologies uh, will give us the possibility to, uh, if not to cure some patients with multiple myeloma, just to prolong survival a lot. Mm -hmm. Because I have seen very promising results uh, at the very end stage of the disease with refractory patients, but also this gives us the uh, possibility to use uh, these uh, techniques, uh, this uh, technology in earlier stage of multiple myeloma, and I believe that Bring it forward. possibly for the high-risk patients, uh, or at least a fraction of high-risk patients, may give us some very good solutions. Of course, this has to be proven, but I think that um, the technology plus uh, the different targets that they may use outside of the BCMA uh, they will give very good solutions for the high-risk population. This is my, uh, um, I believe, uh, this is my belief for the CARTIS especially. Well, I think in that same spirit, this construct of, of you know, new approaches to cellular therapy is so interesting. And of course, just to share with our audience, we now have oral agents, you know, the Cerebron E3 ligase modulators, uh, ibertamide, and most recently 480, which is so powerful. Uh, in what they're doing, that they're sort of, you know, I, I can't, I'm not going to say they're CAR T in a pill because that would be too strong, but they are remarkably potent and active in what they do. And as we think about the COVID era, our ability to sort of tailor therapy to minimize risk for our patients becomes all the more exciting. Um, so, with that in mind, uh, I think it's been a wonderful session. I want to thank uh, Mary V. Achai and Evangelos for a fabulous discussion over the course of the last hour or so, and especially to thank our audience. Uh, for joining us for myeloma sessions today, uh, and in particular to thank our colleagues and partners from Vijay Hemong for making uh, this uh, discussion possible. So thanks everyone, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple, Spotify, and Podbean, so we can continue to deliver expert-led content to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk to join in on the conversation and visit VJHemonk.com for the latest updates in the field.